2: California, and Texas, and New York, and we're going to South Dakota, and Oregon, and Washington, and Michigan, and then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Yeah! From the dog days of political science, sitting in our own houses, it's Election Shock Therapy, long-distance call edition. Hey, guys, how's <laughs> it going?
0: Hey! Hey! Oh, no.
2: Now there's an extra hay in there. If you heard that this time, so <laughs> joining me from all of our homes on our computers in yet another Google meeting
0: is Andy Bramson, Matt Kukum, Mitchell Crumb.
2: Hey, Mitch, hey how's Mitch. it going?
3: <laughs> all right, I'm all right. Um, Thanks for mostly mostly very hot. It's very hot down here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, so it's, it's obli- obligatory
2: midwestern conversation. How hot is it?
3: Yeah. So the way I think about it, the, the difference to me is not so much in the highs, because if you look at the highs, Minnesota and Ohio and the other places also are getting up into the 90s. Yeah. That's uh-huh. not the big deal. The big deal is it never cools off. Yep. And so if you look at the lows and the fact mm-hmm. that it like never drops below 75 degrees at night, yeah. that's where it gets you.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. Yep. That's right. It's all that southern humidity that keeps the heat trapped. So, yeah.
2: so yeah. if you're not a if you're not a uh, truly faithful listener of this podcast, Mitch is a former regular on this podcast when he was teaching at Bethel. He's now at University of South Carolina Aiken, and we've called him in today to join uh, Matt and Andy and myself to talk about. One of the uh, the more exciting things that happens in the summer, especially the summer, when there's not sports, and that is um, a spate of Supreme Court decisions have come down. So the Supreme Court is, is releasing their decisions and opinions on a variety of matters, including some pretty earth shattering cases. And so we want to take a couple of our judicial experts and talk a little bit about some of those decisions and what kind of meaning they have. And so uh, we have just a little bit of a rough outline here, but gents, if there's something else you want to interject into this, let's start by talking about the rather surprising uh, 6-3 decision to treat uh, a sexual orientation uh, under the um, uh, the Civil Rights Civil Rights Act and to treat it as um, as sex. Um, that's commonly known as the Bostock decision. So. Gents, talk to me a little bit about this. What's the legal basis for this, and what do you think of the decision?
3: So, I think in looking at Bostock, there's a couple of uh, I think I think on the one hand, there's there are things about this that are not surprising at all, yes. and then there are things that are super duper surprising. So the the non surprising parts of this are that this this case essentially follows along with precedent in the Supreme Court, and I think. You know, a lot of the surprise that people had, I think, in some ways, reflects a lot of the cynicism about the court. People forget that the court really is an institution that at least at some level tries to uphold its past precedents, And what we think of in that way is the rule of law. And and, and so in that way, what the court is trying to do is it's trying to And the, the legal principle here is what's referred to as stare decisis. So let the decision stand. And what the court is, at least on, in principle, trying to do is they try to look to their past decisions, say, what did we decide in the past? How do those past decisions, those principles, rules, arguments, ideas, how do those past decisions, those cases, what are referred to as precedents, apply to the case that's before us right now? And if you look at those past precedents, those past you know rulings that the court has made, there's a really clear trajectory. I mean, the court has been essentially expanding uh, uh, the ideas of, of sexual rights and sexual liberties, essentially going all the way back to the 1960s with Griswold versus Connecticut. So, you know, you go back and you can see a very clear through line through a lot of cases that the court has done over the last few decades that, that essentially trace up to this. And so if you are taking the court as essentially uh, an institution of law, an institution that is trying to be consistent and follow its own precedents, um, I don't know, you know, and this, and this in some ways is actually even what Gorsuch argues in his, in his opinion, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room. I mean, this is the direction the court's going. This is the precedence the court has set. And, you know, anybody who was surprised by this shouldn't be right. I mean, you know, this is, this is, this is what the court has said. Mm-hmm. So I think on that, on that, and I could say more about that if you want, like thinking about the history, but, but I think then the reason this is so surprising is because, a lot of us are very cynical about the court. (laughs) We don't think of the court as this institution based on law and based on precedent and those kinds of things. And so if you think of the court as a purely political body that's making partisan decisions, just like Congress makes decisions based on R's and D's and liberals and conservatives, um, then this is really surprising because it looks like this is a clear decision where you have conservatives want one thing liberals want another thing and yet you have two justices who are in the quote-unquote conservative bloc who voted with the liberals and so in that sense if you think of the court as a partisan body rather than a body of law and um, you know, consistent, stare decisive application of, of precedence. Um, then it's then it's very surprising, and in fact, even shocking. Um, particularly because um, Justice Gorsuch, in particular, um, was essentially the justification and one of President Trump's main partisan arguments for why he should be in office. Essentially, that you know, you know, this is, is just a sort of say, you know, just you know, pre- President Trump's argument to religious conservatives, especially, was yes, I'm a bad person. But it doesn't matter because I'm going to give you what you want in Supreme Court justices, and you know. So then, and so then, if you look at this from that purely partisan perspective, this is very surprising because it essentially goes against that.
1: Oh yeah. So this is this is a good starting place, and at some point we should maybe walk through the particularities of, of oh, yeah. um majority opinion. Um, so. It's true that the court, you know, has become somewhat more partisan um, over over the years, and that you do see the progressive and the, you know, conservative justices sort of peeling off into their respective sides on certain landmark decisions, um, and so you know the whole sort of, you know, reason, you know, like you said, Mitch, you know, one of the reasons why Trump did so well in two thousand sixteen is because people were concerned about uh, the Supreme Court. And of course, you know, Gorsuch coming down um, in this way is sort of undermines that to some extent, although a lot of his other rulings have been sort of squarely within sort of the conservative um, mold. Um, As for Gorsuch himself, if you go back and listen to the oral arguments um, back in October, Gorsuch was already taking this, the line of reasoning that you see in the, um, in the majority opinion that he wrote. So it's actually not surprising that Gorsuch actually came down this way, if you, if you go back and look at the whole uh-huh. argument. It's surprising in the yep. broader context, like you said, Mitch. Um, but Gorsuch is basically following Kagan um, in this sort of line of reasoning, and that line of reasoning was pretty apparent back in October. So this, so the actual outcome of this particular case is not super surprising. As far as the point on precedent goes, I think it's it's helpful, and maybe I'll I'll push back a little bit. Is that it's helpful to, or we need to differentiate between the the idea of. Of actual precedent and stare decisis, let the decision stand, and then general trends in the court. It's very true, like Mitch pointed out, um, that we have seen a gradual expansion of of sort of gender and, and sexual orientation, sex rights um, over the past, gosh, 30, 40 years, really. Um, um, but even especially in the past couple of decades. That is absolutely true. And so this case is in keeping with that trend. However, this particular case itself is not relying on any past precedent, as far as I can tell. So there's not a particular sort of decision that has been made in the past um, that is that the court is clearly drawing upon in order to issue this ruling. So I would say this ruling is an example of, is an example of following a trend, not an example of of sort of starry decisis because what Gorsuch is actually doing is he's relying on a pretty controversial sort of philosophical claim about sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity. He's conflating those three, which is a very philosophically controversial claim, and he's using a literalist sort of approach to interpreting the word sex in order to come to a certain conclusion. Um, and it's very much not a, not a legal move, it's more of a philosophical move in some sense, and he's not really relying on on um significantly relying on past precedent to to make that sort of move
3: i think i think that's i think that's largely right um in the sense in the sense that there's no direct direct precedent that leads up to this i mean this isn't like um you know the in the one sense it's not like in that way it differs Pretty markedly, I think, from like a Berghofeld, where you had a series of cases that led up to saying, you know, yes. um, you know, that essentially said, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we're, you can, you know, you can no longer prosecute um, gay sex, and then you can no longer, right. uh, you know, base, you know, etc. Um, and right. and so, you, so you have these these cases, um, you know, like Lawrence versus Texas, that lead up to yes. Berghofeld, which pretty clearly yes. gives you a, a line of, um, of precedence. On, on the other hand, I mean. I guess i guess what i'm thinking about when i'm thinking about um some of the precedents and, and you're right i mean uh you know in reading through um the case gorsuch doesn't have sort of like this sort of slam dunk thing but i mean it's the same thing with you know in some ways that uh, bergerfeld versus hodges itself sort of presents um you know its own sort of precedent in that way and even though he's not relying on it in that in that way i mean the fact that that you know that, that, that gay marriage has essentially been established as a right um you know kind of already orient you in that in that direction. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's more what I'm thinking about. But I, but I think you're right. I mean, in terms of, you know, there is no direct, um, you know, precedent in that way. Um, that's fair. That's, well, that, yeah. But I do want to say something else. And I think this and maybe, uh, maybe you have some other thoughts on this, I just want to, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about with this, with this case is, um, it, it's basically, I think it brings up some really interesting things, and I think you started down this path, and maybe this will get us into thinking about the particulars of Gorsuch's argument. Um, but it's like, what is the meaning of originalism? And I think yeah. one of the most, probably the most interesting thing to come out of this case is, um, it, you know, is is the really sharp disagreement to some degree between Alito and Gorsuch, um, yeah. and uh, you know, if you think about originalism, and just you know, just to say it again, you know, originalism is is essentially this idea that you for defining yes yeah that's right yeah so uh originalism is essentially the idea that uh rather rather well let me back up actually one step further here so the idea of the rule of law is that essentially you shouldn't have the whims or ideas of people who are making political decisions the rule of law says you should have a set of laws and those laws guide the outcomes you know so if you're pulled over by the police officer The police officer can't just say, hey, I hate yellow cars, and so you get a ticket, you know, because of his own subjective opinions about garish colors on cars. Um, Instead, he has to say, hey, there is a law that says you can't drive more than, you know, 30 miles an hour. You are driving 50 miles an hour. Therefore, because of this law, you're getting a ticket. Um, And so the idea behind the rule of law is there has to be the set laws that that guide government action. Um, And... The argument for um, uh, amongst originalists is that essentially in order to be bound by the law, in order for judges themselves to not be just using their own subjective opinions about what the law ought to be, um, they need some kind of set benchmark. And so the benchmark that uh, particularly Justice Scalia, especially is famous for setting out, is this idea that you go to history, you go to the people who actually wrote uh, you know, these particular laws and you define them in the terms that they would have understood. So if you want to understand what a clause in the Constitution means, you say, well, what did this clause mean in the context of you know, 1787, 1788, et cetera? Um, and you try to define it um, for, for what it meant there. And in the same way, what's sometimes referred to then as you know, what Gorsuch describes as his quote unquote textualism, is you do the same thing then for for, for laws that are written. Right. You say, what does the text of the law say? How is it understood at the time it was written? And then you apply it. Um, and that's and that's essentially what's what's at stake here um and what's interesting then is you have two people who are at least on paper originalists <laughs> roberts and gorsuch um on one side of this case and then you have three others you've got thomas alito and uh, uh and and um cavanaugh uh, Kavanaugh. who are yeah Kavanaugh. thanks yeah who are on the who are on the other side um and what one of the things that's just really striking is, is when you read the opinions is you've got Gorsuch who's, who's laying out to some degree, I think, you know, I mean, what he's obviously trying to do in that decision is be pretty focused on the text. What is the meaning of the word sex? What did it mean? Uh, you know, what, what are the different ways we can understand this? Right. And so he's looking at that and then you've got Alito who uh, who actually is doing the same thing. Right. So it, it comes down to this question of defining the words in that way. And I think, you know, I'll just say two things and then Matt, I'll yeah, I'll let you jump in here, but but You're just just, a, just just a couple other things here as far as this goes. I mean, on the one hand, it, it some to some degree shows sort of the triumph of originalism, and even Justice Elena Kagan, as as Matt pointed out, right, has oftentimes used originalist arguments. In fact, I think it was during her confirmation hearings, she sort of said like, "We're all originalists now," right, which is just a stunning claim. Um, you know that this that this philosophy that had like one or two adherents. 30 or 40 years ago on the court um, is now declared by somebody who's on the left as just the universal theory of constitutional interpretation. Now, she was obviously tongue in cheek to some degree, but, but, you know, but you can tell that she's been very effective at essentially, um, you know, using originalism. Um, If you're on the right, you might even say co-opting originalism (laughs) Um, uh, to, you know, to basically say that it maybe means something different than what, than, 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 than what some people think. And obviously, she's she's obviously there's a lot of strength to that because you know even somebody like Gorsuch who obviously has, um, who obviously has uh, right right leaning uh, opinions himself um, is is essentially following that. But I think the other thing this shows is it shows some of the cracks I think actually in originalism as a theory because remember the whole idea behind originalism was that it gives you these bedrock principles that remove subjectivity. But if you have two originalists. Who basically are saying no, you're getting the ideas wrong, and they are actually making you know making arguments that show that there maybe there isn't this rock solid definition that you can just go back to that clearly establishes the law and that removes any kind of subjective opinion, um, Then maybe the whole, you know in some ways it actually threatens the whole project. I mean, because if that doesn't exist. Then maybe originalism is exactly as Justice Breyer, who's a critic of originalism, has said. It's just really papering over another way to smuggle in subjective opinions. Um, and, you know, Justice Breyer has been sharply critical of originalists on this point for years. And this case probably gives his argument, um, a lot more grist, um, just in the sense that if you have originalists who are subjectively disagreeing with each other, then it really calls into question whether this is actually an objective theory of constitutional and legal interpretation.
1: Of course, that assumes that both, are, both originalists, Alito and Gorsuch, are actually being originalist in the opinions that they write. Um, and I right. think there's a case to be made that Gorsuch is actually not being an originalist. He's being what's called a literalist. And there's an interesting debate about around this. And the idea of a literalist is sort of the idea that a word, the words in a statute have their own meaning um, beyond the intentions and ideas of the drafters of that law. Um, and the words have their own meaning independent of of what the drafters meant. Um, and Scalia actually said that a good textualist is not a literalist. Um, Instead, a good textualist is someone who looks to the original meaning of of how the words were understood um, and how they were employed to achieve um, certain policy goals by the original drafters. And if you actually go back and look at the history of the inclusion of the word sex in the Civil Rights Act, which eventually uh, became part of Title VII, which was that question here, the term sex was originally included in the Civil Rights Act partly as a poison pill amendment. Um, It wasn't the result of sort of considered congressional action. Basically, the guy who included it, Representative Howard Smith, was the chair of the House Rules Committee. He was a well-known segregationist and racist, and he basically inserted the term sex. And the historians debate about this, but the most plausible explanation is that he included the word sex um, in order to basically prevent this particular bill from passing because he actually had a very long history of shooting down similar pieces of legislation that basically expand civil rights um, for racial and ethnic minorities. Um, and the idea is if you include the word sex, um, which is different than the other categories, basically it would seem sort of crazy to include sort of the protection of women, right, um, in, a, in the Civil Rights Act, which was really the original motivation behind which had nothing to do with feminism, it had to do with sort of rape, uh, race and ethnicity, right, and so it was a, a kind of a poison pill amendment. Now, he is known to have been sympathetic to feminism, but he has a very long history of of shooting down this sort of legislation, and so now, of course, the, the feminists at the time supported this, right, and the amendment did sure. pass um, in both the House and the Senate, but it's interesting that um, that sort of the, the intention of the people who originally drafted the Civil Rights Act um was basically um and even the inclusion of sex was was a very was a very particular understanding right the understanding yeah. was we're going to include this to basically protect women from the same sorts of discrimination that um, that people that that you know ethnic and racial minorities are experiencing, right? Um, and so what Gorsuch is doing is he's basically he's conflating three different ideas. He's conflating sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity. He's conflating these three into into one term, which is interestingly something that feminists and some L- LGBTQ theorists have wanted to reject. But he's conflating sure. these three terms, right? Um, and and so even though both he and Alito ostensibly think that sex refers to biological sex, what Gorsuch is doing and where he's different than Alito is he's including these two other ideas in the idea of sex. Now, and basically let's... that creates certain problems um, with and, and and he's doing that so that he can basically use so that he can say that that um that discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual sexual orientation is necessarily an example of discrimination on the basis of sex. So basically he says this in the case of a male plaintiff, for example, being attracted to men. If the plaintiff was in fact a heterosexual woman, then the plaintiff would have been fired. Ergo, the discrimination is fundamentally sex discrimination. So basically if changing the person's biological sex while maintaining sexual orientation, Changing the person's biological sex would have changed the outcome then sex discrimination has occurred. That's the logic that he's using. So he's, he's basically starting with a, the same sort of concept of sex, but then he's, he's enveloping two other concepts into it in order to achieve a certain outcome. But here's the problem. Um, basically, and, and Alito basically says this in his opinion. Um, he basically, by enveloping these two different concepts he creates other sorts of legal problems. Um, And it's actually sort of at, at odds with what other sort of progressive gender theorists have have been saying for decades, actually. So Alito argues that it's possible to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity without actually discriminating on the basis of sex. So, for example, a company can implement a policy that states that the company does not hire will not hire a gay, a lesbian, or a transgender individual. And they can implement that policy without actually knowing the biological sex of the individual. So you can't therefore say that that discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation is therefore necessarily a discrimination based Mm -hmm. on sex. And it turns out that when this point was raised in the oral arguments in October, basically the attorney representing the plaintiffs admitted that this would not constitute a discrimination based on sex. And so what you have here is not uh, two sort of originalist understandings. Um, I think Gorsuch is claiming it to be an originalist understanding. Um, What you have is a literalist approach masquerading as an originalist approach um, against what is what I would say a truly originalist approach. Um, If these are both originalist understandings, then indeed, as Mitch pointed out, then uh, originalism has no meaning. Um, and we're simply sort of, and, and originalism is simply sort of a, um, an essentially contested concept, as we like to say in philosophy and um, political science, an essentially contested concept that we can use as sort of a label to legitimize our position. Um, and, and maybe that's what originalism will become um i think that tends to muddy the waters i think originalism is a useful concept i think literalism is a useful concept to describe certain sort of um, judicial philosophies um and i think it's helpful to um to you know maintain the 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 sort of the, the descriptive aspects of those of those concepts because they tell us something about the different approaches um and so so if we're going to take those those simple sort of descriptors um being what they are and how they have historically been understood to mean I would say Gorsuch is not taking a truly sort of a regionalist approach, and I I, I could go on. I've been rambling, but and I, I have more to say. But maybe maybe Mitch wants to wants to push back a little bit. Chris, I felt like you were trying to jump in there. Did you yeah, I want
2: to I want to ask a dumb IR guy question. So um, <laughs> my whole head is filled with you know nuclear bomb throw weights and things like that. And um, so I'm, I'm hearkening back to my philosophy of law class. uh, Hey, Dr. Klein. um, And some (laughs) other, uh, some of my other introductions to judicial theory. And so I understand what originalism is here, but is it fair to say that what Gorsuch is arguing is basically when the civil rights act was written and the poison pill, I thought that was fascinating. I had no idea that Harold Smith put that in there. Um, But the, the, the um, adding the word sex in, that at the time that that was added in, sex was conflated to be both biological sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. And that since that time, we have disaggregated those things. So as an originalist, at least in Gorsuch's mind as an originalist, he is adding in all those three things which were conflated at the time in the original intent of the word being inserted, as opposed to what we now think of as three separate distinct categories of um, of, of human life.
1: Right. And 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 in that technical sense, yes. But if you look at what the original inclusion of sex was designed, or maybe not originally designed by Smith, but perhaps um, with the support of various other members of Congress and, and the public, you know, the, the goal, the inclusion of the word sex was to was to ultimately provide protection for people regardless of their biological sex. Okay, and that protection has nothing to do with whatever sexual orientation they, or gender identity they have, mm-hmm. regardless of what their biological sex is. Right. Um. So, so yeah, we've since sort of teased apart um. Sexual identity, excuse me, gender identity, sexual orientation, and biological sex. We've since teased mm-hmm. those out, and so this is where originalism is not really looking at sort of the the actual sort of technical definition of something. You're you're looking at what was the original intent the purpose behind the legislation, right? Um, what was this designed to do? How did other, how did everyone under, what what did everyone at the time understand this to me? Um, no one at the time would have thought that therefore this is, this is provides protection for people who claim transgender status. That would not have occurred to anyone at the time. Right, right. Now, right. Now, you know, now, Congress can certainly come in and basically say, hey, we want, you know, later and make an amendment to try yeah. to add sort of other sorts of things to this list of things that you're not allowed to discriminate on. Right. And now Congress has actually tried to do this um, over the past, you know, really over the past 10 years. There's been various attempts because they because Congress has understood that sex doesn't actually it mean these other things. You actually have to put it in the law. Right. Yeah. Um and these these attempts um, have have fallen flat, um, and so this this policy goal has not been achieved. Um, and so, of course, now the policy goal has been uh, achieved um, by by the courts. Okay. So, um, so I guess so I, I'm things. not I'm not sort of disputing you know I'm not disputing the the goodness of sort of the outcome necessarily um, of providing protection. Um, Against discrimination for people of these statuses, um, it's more of a it's more of a problem with sort of the method that's used, right? And there's actually a lot of a, a lot of serious um, legal problems that um, that this particular case um, creates. But I've talked to long enough, and I think Nick has something to say.
3: No, well, I know mean, we can think about some of the. I mean, obviously, we should at some point think about what this means um, in terms of actually probably some of the other cases that are coming down the pipe here. Yeah. Um questions about um you know how this affects how this reflect reflect uh, affects religious employers, um maybe, you know, maybe even churches, things like that. Um But I okay. uh, okay. okay. ask you about gonna... that
2: directly because um except for you, Mitch, oh, sure. the rest of us are employed at a religious institution. Um does this does this case open up a door for legal challenges to religious institutions like churches, religious uh, schools? Um uh, for hiring and firing on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity?
3: So I think the short answer to that is, and, and again, this is where, uh, a lot of folks felt like, um, Gorsuch was, was actually pretty maddeningly vague. He basically said, yes, this cre- opens the door, uh, to this and it potentially creates, uh, problems, but we will address that later. <laughs>
1: almost yeah, explained. basically.
3: Um, you know, it, he he's very much says, like, yeah, this is this is going to be an issue, and I'm not solving it um, right now.
2: So, In other news, Gorsuch um, was one of the shadow writers for the recent Star Wars trilogy. Right,
3: right. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, so, the, so the short answer is yes. I mean, even Gorsuch, again, in his opinion, acknowledges that yeah. I mean, this is this is this is a thing. Now, there are a couple other questions that are before the court. Actually, the court has taken on a couple of um, religious uh, uh, cases. Actually, that it's going to be considering here. So, there's a question of, um, you know, the, there's the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, which is going to uh, decide whether, um, basically, wh- whether religious employers can object to providing certain forms of contraceptions um, on moral grounds. Um, there's, a, there's a case that essentially asks about whether employment discrimination laws apply to teachers at religious schools. Yep. Um, so, so we actually have these questions pending before the court. And um, I actually just, I was looking today at what's going on in the court right now, and I, I noticed that they've actually announced, they're gonna be announcing opinions on Monday and Tuesday next week. So I think we're probably gonna have all of these cases by the end of Tuesday is my guess. So production um, note to Sam,
2: uh, let's go ahead and call this part one of
3: two. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we'll see what they say as far as that stuff goes. Now, yep. what's also interesting here, and I think this is, you know, just to get at the religious stuff, um, I think the court is going to actually be in a really interesting place here. Um, and again, this kind of gets me back to the originalism um, questions here. And and I do think one of the things I want to note actually is um, – you know, any kind of coherent philosophy, right? Any kind of coherent legal philosophy and Matt, you know, Matt's been talking about what is, what does a coherent legal philosophy look like? Um, one of the things that actually distinguishes a coherent legal philosophy versus just subjective opinions based on your partisanship is do you sometimes rule against your own quote unquote side? Um, so it, it, does your philosophy lead you to conclusions that might not necessarily be what your partisan allies want, um, but is nonetheless consistent with your, with your legal philosophy? Um, Justice Scalia was actually pretty famous for this. I mean, he was somebody who ruled um, for really broad protections on things like free speech. Um, one of the things that you know, really irked a lot of people uh, you know, in the quote-unquote conservative category is you know, he strongly defended things like flag burning, um, he strongly defended the rights of the criminally accused. Um, and, and and interestingly, this is where I'm leading to with this. He also uh, argued in um, Smith versus, uh, um, let's see, Smith versus Oregon Employment, or I can't remember the exactly. Anyway, in the Smith case, <laughs> Scalia argued essentially that free exercise of religion clause in the Constitution really doesn't protect people that much. It protects you from any kind of belief you might want to have but it doesn't protect your practice that much. And so Scalia's own ruling on the Free Exercise Clause in the Constitution um, basically is that it doesn't provide that much protection to things like religious schools or, uh, you know, th- and, and, and even religious practice itself. I mean, the question in that case was, can you use otherwise illicit drugs um, as part of a religious ceremony? And, and Justice Scalia basically yeah. said, if something's illegal, um, it doesn't matter if you are claiming it's part of a religion, it's still illegal. Um, and so um and and so and so and so again this kind of raises this sort of this sort of interesting um questions about you know again about the about the meaning or scope of originalism but the but the big game changer and this is the thing that the court's going to be no doubt addressing here is in response to the smith case um congress um in something that is almost unimaginable today almost unanimously (laughs) passed um, a sweeping piece of legislation, which is the restoration of Religious Freedom Act. Um, and uh, and basically what that act uh, put in place is, is is essentially said that if you are a religious organization, especially if you are, you know uh, uh, basically a place of worship, um but also it included wide varieties of other religious organizations, um, then you have really widespread protections. Congress has to essentially apply um, what amounts to, or sorry, the courts have to essentially apply what amounts to um, something approaching strict scrutiny, which is basically the court has to, the law has to only impact you um, to what is referred to as the least restrictive means possible, right? So even if something is, uh, even if there are laws and objectives that you have as government, you have to obstruct religion to the minimal amount. Um, and so this gives really wide protections even, and this has been interpreted to give wide protections even to religious employers. So for example, hobby in the uh, hobby lobby case, in mm-hmm. uh, I think it was 2013, 2014, um, the court used the religious freedom restoration act to essentially say that because these, this was a religious employer, um, that this guaranteed their ability to, to essentially, have exemptions from otherwise applicable laws. Um, so, what will be interesting to see is: does the court continue to respect um, and follow the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Um, does it does it apply now also to these issues of gender discrimination and issues of uh, you know um, uh, you know? So, how does basically how does how does this apply now um, to to these cases? And uh, um, and interestingly, I do think. It, it's going to be it, what's going to be super interesting about these upcoming discrimination cases, not only the ones that are before the court now, but the ones that will no doubt be brought before the court in coming years. Here, is that Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan uh, in Masterpiece Cake Shop actually sided with the quote-unquote conservatives, saying that yeah, there actually are instances where um, sometimes, sometimes uh, you know, basically moral moral convictions can give you certain levels of exemptions. Um, so. The short answer. So the short, the short answer, which I know it's not a short answer, but the short answer is, um, yes, it raises these, these, uh, these, these, these questions, and it remains a really open issue as to whether um, religious institutions, including religious employers like Bethel, um, mm-hmm. will will be
2: able to discriminate. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah. it's likely in the future we're going to see another round of court cases deciding this very issue, probably in the short term.
1: Yeah, particularly on Monday. Um, yeah, it's yep. just a, a few things to note. Um, I think Mitch is, is, makes a lot of good points. It's it's true that you know a lot of justices um, will sometimes tend to. Um, you know, cross over um, and join the other side on an issue. And actually, if you look at the number of times in which there are these, you know, these stark sort of splits in the court, they're actually not as common as as you would think. A lot of times, uh, the decisions are like, you know, seven two eight one, you know, nine zip. Um, that happens actually quite a lot of the time. Um, so. Um, of course, you know, just just because you cross over to the other side um, doesn't mean that you are exercising a coherent judicial philosophy. You can cross over to the other side, right? And that's not necessarily an example of of you being coherent in your judicial approach. It might be, <laughs> or it might not be, right? So, um, so you know, we can sort of debate whether or not, um, and we kind of already have debate whether or not Gorsuch is is being consistent. I think Mitch says he is. I'm saying he's not, but. It is true that you can cross over because you're trying to be consistent. Um, uh, I think Mitch is right, um, Rifra, um, the Religious Freedom uh, Restoration Act, um, Gorsuch actually referenced that um, in his majority decision and say that is still in place um, and that still offers protections, but of course, as Mitch noted, um, that's, <laughs> that's really vague. Um, or he was vague about that, um, but he did reference it in the court case, and I think what you're going to see potentially Monday and Tuesday of this upcoming week is you're going to see the court potentially deal um, deal with a question about whether or not um, employees who have a religious function mm-hmm. at a religious institution, that's that's the question, um, basically get to enjoy what's called the ministerial um, e- exemption, right? Um, the exemption that ministers currently enjoy from um and sort of the requirements for for you know hiring ministers. Um, and so question is whether or not the court's gonna expand that. Um, and so mm-hmm. we'll see if the court does that in in um, the decisions that it hands down um, next Monday and Tuesday. But even beyond sort of the religious liberty questions, um, I think the Bolstock case open basically opens a giant sort of bucket of worms in a variety of other cases um, or sorts of cases. So there's literally over a hundred federal laws that prohibit discrimination based on sex, not just in Title VII. There are many, there are dozens of federal statutes that prohibit discrimination based on sex in a variety of situations. Now that the court has redefined, essentially, um, the meaning of sex discrimination, all of these laws are now open to reinterpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, And what you are going to see, um, in all likelihood, a spate of a whole new batch of lawsuits um, involving the use of these federal laws to require, for example, transgender females to participate in women's sports or transgender access to opposite-sex bathrooms, opposite biological-sex bathrooms, um, and you're going to see a lot of sort of debate over this. and And I guess you know, sort of a, a takeaway for me um, is that is that you know one of one of the original sort of purposes of of the of the court um, is to basically resolve disputes over interpretations of the law, um, and so that you can get rid of, so you can take disputes off the table so that you can offer clarity. What this essentially does, what this court case does is it creates problems for, reinter- for interpreting and applying literally dozens of other federal statutes. Um, and when a court case basically steps in, redefines something that basically muddies the interpretation and application of literally dozens of other laws, that is not a good court decision. That is not the court, you know, exercising its 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 clarifying function in a good way. We want the court to clarify things. That's why it exists, right? Um, but whenever you sort of where the court steps in and muddies the waters and actually creates literally could could open up dozens of new lawsuits, some of which make their way to the Supreme Court. That, I mean, that actually undermines rule of law in some ways because you're undermining the meaning of those laws themselves. Um, and that's that's no way to you know I think to to run. To run a democracy. So yeah, we might want certain sort of policy outcomes like protections um, for these people against discrimination because of their gender um, identity or sexual orientation. But But the court's adoption of this approach creates all sorts of other legal problems um, and you know, which are going to impact people in some potentially harmful ways. Um, and also, as Justice Kavanaugh said in his separate dissent, undermines basically the democratic process. It'll, it can, in the long run, undermine the legitimacy of the court because the court is acting as a super legislature and making rulings on these decisions, expanding, expanding rights. Which we might want to be expanded, but in the process of doing that creates its own problems and short circuits sort of the democratic process and and further basically um, removes any remaining incentive that Congress might have to actually proactively go in and address this issue and and basically update the laws in a way that actually makes sense and that don't create further um, interpretational issues mm-hmm.
0: yeah,
3: I think it was interesting. Um, uh, Ross Douthat actually had an interesting um, observation. I can't remember if it was sometime in the last week or two. I don't remember exactly. It might have been in response to this decision, but I don't remember. But he he basically said that the way to think of our our system of government right now is no longer as three branches, um, but as essentially as 2.25 branches, <laughs> because basically <Yeah>. you have <laughs> a president that acts, you know, a presidency that acts unilaterally with you know in whatever way it can get away with. Yep. And then you have uh, a court that is the main check on the presidency, um, and and also advances various uh, 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 you know objectives at various times. Um, and then you have a Congress that occasionally comes and passes a budget, but otherwise pretty much does nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's true. Yeah. And and that is, I, I think there is, yeah, I think there is something to that. Um, yeah. you know, in one way, um, you know, I I, I especially. Uh, you know, agree that I think there's, it it really, it really is uh, disturbing how little Congress has done in terms Mm. of clarifying laws. And, um, you know, again, no matter what you think the outcome should be in this particular case, um, you know, it is very problematic that that these kinds of issues are not being seriously hammered out in, in, in Congress, and that this isn't, you know, and that our more democratic branch isn't the branch that's the one tackling these, um, you know, these, these kinds of issues. Um, so I, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think there's, yeah I think there's, you know, uh, you know, and one of the, you know, one of the things that is kind of pathetic almost is, you know, the last major piece of legislation that Congress did was the affordable care act. And that was like almost 12 years ago at this point. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's pathetic. I mean, that we have one branch of our government that, you know that basically has has gone through various control by different by different parties and still just can't seem to actually um, you know actually manage to do anything and and part of that I think gets at and I don't know how much we want to talk about this aspect of it but I mean part of that gets at um, you know um, uh, we 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 have these we have we have divisions in in American society but especially you know the polarization amongst uh, uh, amongst especially especially hardcore partisans has just gotten so extreme that politicians feel like they can't they can't compromise and mm-hmm. you know th- With you know and, and they, they they can't be seen as compromising they can't be seen as you know cutting deals or Actually doing the work of you know horse trading and actual legislation um, Because otherwise they'll lose their primaries and actually even in just the elections we just saw um, a couple days ago um, you know even though largely the democratic party has has recently um, you know especially with the with the promotion of Joe Biden has sort of gone for in some cases more centrist candidates, um at the same time, just uh, you know a few a couple of days ago when in uh, several primaries, some uh, democrat you know some more centrist Democrats lost their seats to more uh, you know to more extreme partisans. And we've seen this on the right as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's increasingly difficult for people to actually um, hold a position where uh, you know where they're able to actually do the acts of legislation. Just because, especially people who vote in primaries, the more committed, um, polarized partisans are just so averse to any kind of compromise. Which, of course, ironically is you know exactly the opposite of what James Madison said should be the spirit of, of it the f- republic.
2: Isn't it fair, fair to say, Mitch, that the, uh, the the branch of government in the United States least uh, su- least capable of dealing with uh, an erosion of compromise is the legislature. If you have a hardline president or a hardline court, that the court, the system is equipped to deal with that. But a, but a, a legislature that doesn't compromise is really hamstrung by that.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's no. There's there's very little they can get done. I mean, the whole idea of uh, of Congress is 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 trying to engage in collective action. I mean, it's trying to you have to get majorities, and you have to in some cases get more than majorities mm-hmm. and um to do that you have to be able to bring a lot of people on board and together and uh yeah so I, yeah i think in, in that way i mean it's particularly discouraging that these kinds of questions are, are being handled more by the court and um yeah and not and not so much by by uh by congress itself
0: yeah i mean just two, two quick comments on all this like i think one you're absolutely right to highlight the doubt that comment that you know, like I mean, everybody's a legislator now, right? I mean, all the branches legislate. I mean, if we're gonna, if we're honest, like I think, I tend to agree that Gorsuch is in some ways legislating. He's changing the meaning, right, of what what do we understand by sex, or certainly what people in the '60s would have understood by this. Um, and he's doing sort of kind of try to fill a gap, right, that they that is perceived to we need to be fill, filling, right. Uh, and the presidency, too, I mean, like, is always legislating, right? Issuing these executive orders for things that really should be covered by by legislation. And both of those are doing that because uh-huh. the, the House and Senate are so impotent. I mean, there's just struggle to ever pass anything, I mean, especially when you have divided, you know, power between the House and Senate, where, you know, House is Democratic and Senate's Republican. But even when they were controlled by the same party, even when they're controlled by the same party and they have the presidency, um, you know, they've struggled to get... Much done. Um, so, the second thing I would just say is, like, I'm I'm reading a book right now by Liliana Mason um, called "Uncivil Agreement," right? And she really um, <laughs> did a nice job of kind of you know, trying to understand I me mean, why is this happening, right? And it's partly a lot of it has to do with how we've sorted ourselves into these these tribes, right? Where it's all about that loyalty to the group. You you the group must triumph, and anyone who's not fully loyal to the group is suspect, right? Which is why you're going to vote out. If you're Democrats, an angle, right? Because I mean, like, yeah, he's too much of a deal maker, right? We want someone who's hardline, who's going to hold the line no matter what. Um, and every uh-huh. time we do somebody like that in favor of a hardliner, um, it just makes those compromises a little more difficult. But it's it's a natural result of the kind of the sorting and the polarization that we've we've undergone over the last you know two three decades. Yeah, and, and a result of our of our two party system, right? Um, you oh can
1: yeah. Imagine a situation right. in which if we had a multi party system, which would require a different Um, sort of system of of elections, right? You can imagine two party system in which the extremes kind of, well, you know, stay on the extreme, but you get two or three parties in the middle that are able to join together, form a coalition and get stuff done. Um, But we don't. Right. And so we have this sort of system in which we have two parties and these two parties because of the way that we elect our choose our our candidates through a primary system. And we've talked about that before in this podcast. Right. Um, Basically creates this basically um, breaks down um, sort of the the connection um, that that we would normally see. Um, between, between, you know, representatives and their sort of legislative task um, and their ability to get reelected, right? So in political science, we talk about this thing called the electoral connection. You know, members of Congress are always doing things to try to get reelected, right? Yeah. And usually that means doing representative work, right? Passing yeah. legislation. And that's the way it's been for quite some time. But now that connection has, has shifted. Now to get yeah. reelected, you don't engage in this sort of truly representational activity you don't engage in passing legislation you basically you posture right or you you do sort of symbolic legislation that isn't substantive um, that probably isn't even passing through both houses and 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 signed by the president that's just passed by the party in your own house so you can signal to the people that are really active in politics and your base signal to them that you're being loyal and that you're true and that you're not you know some you know um, you know, hack from the other side. You know, uh, who's you know impersonating, right. and and, mm-hmm. and and basically, you know, getting primary, right? So, yep. so we have this, we have different incentives now um, for our, our members of Congress, and that's that's really hamstringing our efforts to actually you know solve some of these issues. Which means that you know the president and the courts you know feel sort of compelled uh, to step in and 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 fill the legislative void.
2: Okay, let me yeah. ask you a question about what you just said, Matt, at the very end there, because I think this is an this is a, it's a question of motives, which is I agree with everything you said about the, the nature of Congress uh, moving away from compromise and its, and its inability to legislate. And it's actually worse than that because the Congre- Congress also has no internal incentives to change that system, right? right. The system that got us here is a system that keeps the people in power in power so that neither party is motivated to change the representational nature of Congress. However, is is the presidency and the court stepping into legislate because Congress is not, or are they simply doing it because they have the capacity to do so?
1: Both. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, right. So, so this I, is. I guess, I guess what
2: I'm saying is I'm I'm just less charitable. I don't think they're seeing this as oh Congress isn't doing something we should step in, but rather they're saying we can get away with this because Congress isn't checking us, and so we will.
1: Well, I mean, I I think it depends on the issue that you're talking about. I mean, you know, in the case of the Supreme Court, I mean, I think, yeah, the Supreme Court is like, yeah, we can get away with it. But it's sort of like, well, there's been attempts to update this for a long time. This is kind of the direction we're going. And so we need to, we need to update this policy. There's other cases specifically more regards to the president. It's like, hey, we can get away with this. Right. And this is sort of the growth of what we call the imperial presidency, you know, presidents using sort of unilateral, unilateral authority to enact policy agendas and the inability of Congress to do much about it. Now, there, there have been times in which congress has actively basically given authority to the president to do things they'll basically write very vague legislation uh, and then they'll you know basically giving some general policy directives and then you know giving authority to the relevant executive departments and agencies to basically go promulgate rules that allow them to actually implement those vague policy goals on the ground because they 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 don't want to get down into the nitty-gritty um and there's a variety of reasons for that so i think it depends on I think it depends on the particular situation you're looking at. I think there's sometimes Congress is, is actively, you know, ceding its power. Sometimes it's the courts or executive taking advantage. Sometimes it might even be um, the the courts or the executive seeing the need for action and realizing that Congress isn't taking action and that if anything is going to be solved, that they have to do it themselves. I think it it, it depends. So,
0: yeah.
2: All right, gents. Um, We talked about the Bostock decision, Um, (laughs) (laughs) so good for that. Now, I love this conversation. I love this explanation of what originalism is and how it's come to dominate uh, court thinking. I like the idea of the contrast of originalism with literalism and how that's led to this disjunction between sort of Gorsuch's decision for the majority and uh, the uh, dissents uh, on the other side from Alito and Kavanaugh. And... I'm really interested to sort of come back to this, maybe in a part two next week with, we you know, a few more decisions and talk about court decisions as they relate to, um, to DACA, to uh, into a whole host of other issues. So, um, Mitch, can we bring you back in next week for another conversation? No, sure. Excellent. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can always get a hold of, of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can also write to the podcast channel, and you should be subscribing to the podcast channel. There is great uh, Channel 3900 content coming all summer. Uh, there is um, uh, um, Tweet Victory is coming out weekly. Uh, I think we have a few other things uh, in the hopper as well, so check that out. Can
3: I jump in on that, Chris, actually? Yes, please. Um, so Let me just say that uh, Bookish at Bethel sold me on two books that I have actually basically just finished this summer, which is Dracula and Frankenstein and uh so uh shout out to them for for basically getting me into uh the monster horror genre here and uh they've been fantastic i've i've loved both of them so and that's 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 for them
2: mish i think there could not have been a better summer than 2020 to take a turn towards gothic horror. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Excellent, good choice on I, your I part agree. that is true um <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm. I also reread Dracula this year and it rings so true. It's, it's much more 2020 than you think it would be. If you haven't read <laughs> it recently, go, go reread Dracula. Um, like I said, uh, thanks for that. Um, and like I said, uh, you can uh, write to the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Uh, please subscribe and uh, send, us a, send us a note too if you have any questions for us. We'll be back in your feed next week with some more Supreme Court talk. And until you hear my voice again, go Royals.